As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me today to talk about Americans Abroad and answer some lister questions, it's a twofer. It's a fellow who has watched more footage of Yunus Musa than maybe Yunus Musa himself. <laughs> I don't know about Yunus Musa's family, but Yunus Musa himself probably. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. I'm wondering if I could get a business card that has, or maybe maybe this is a T-shirt or a foam finger situation that says, you know, I've watched more film on Yunus Musa than anyone in the world. I think we can work with this. <laughs> it's a very it's a very specific shirt, but I do like it, and it is does feel accurate because I feel like we have watched a lot of him. I'm sure Valencia fans have watched a lot of him as well, but I do feel like he is an ever present fixture on these uh, Americans Abroad weekend review shows. It's like that Office episode where Michael Scott has everybody do the fun run for rabies, right? And he has <laughs> yes. a really, really long name to the fun run, and they put it on a T-shirt. I feel like that's my Eunice Musa T-shirt idea because, yeah, we talk about him all the time because he's such an interesting player to watch, yes, but then also to talk about his role for club and for country and where, where on the field is, is his best spot. Uh, we will add Celebrity Pro-Am to this conversation, <laughs> as did Michael Scott for that fun run. Uh, but for now, let's talk about some of our youngsters. We're going to talk Eunice Musa later on. Let's start with Tyler Adams, another uh, common name that we talk about on this show. Joe, I know you did some Tyler Adams viewing. I did as well. What did you make of his performance this past weekend? His performance against Augsburg was okay. It wasn't uh-huh. great, but it was... Yeah. It was almost quintessential Tyler Adams, and I feel like everything I say is going to be a little bit harsh, and so I want to start with the positive stuff. He still shielded the back line really well. To give context here, he came off the bench for Leipzig in that 2-1 win on Friday over Augsburg, and he came on for Kevin Kampel, who is a central midfielder, and that meant that Adams actually got to play as a central defensive midfielder for the first time in over a month, and I think maybe just the second time in this calendar year. And so I think it's a good sign that we got to see more from Adams in midfield. So that's a positive. I also think his general defensive work was positive. He covers so much ground, and he did that in this game. He counterpresses really willingly, and he did that in this game. But defensively, there were there were at least a couple moments of weakness and, and mm-hmm. over-aggression, if that's a term. And then offensively, he was, he was poor. He was unrefined. His game looked yeah. really rough with his passing. And 
I think part of it is just because he had a couple of bad moments and they started to compound on each other in this, you know, 30-ish minute cameo. But part of it is just, I think that might be who Tyler Adams is at this point. I would add another, I, I take your point, but I would add one more other possibility to that, which is that I noticed him trying to do things sometimes like too quickly, uh, to your point about like him tracking and maybe over pursuing. That's a thing we've seen from him in midfield and, uh, when he is playing right back slash right wing back. Uh, and so like I have fewer concerns about that than I do. Sometimes I saw him on the ball and it just felt like he was rushing. He was trying to get the ball off his foot, diagonals being played in or balls into feet playing too quickly. And that to me sounded or felt like a player trying to show that they can do this job and do exactly what's been asked of them, but almost trying to do it too quickly. Yeah. And so it reminds me of like, this is a very unfair comparison, but it's the one I can most comfortably make is like me when I was playing and my coach would tell me to do something. If I was unfamiliar, but I wanted to show I could do it, I would just try to do that thing as quickly as possible. And it removed like, if he was like, take the ball and, and spray it to the other side of the field. As soon as I got the ball, I was just turning and hitting it without really looking. Cause I was like, well, you said play it as fast as I could. And there's that difference between the comfort of knowing the position and being asked to do something in that position. So, you know, ideally I'm playing it as quickly as I can, but sometimes I'm going to have to take a touch or cut back or do something else versus I just have to do this thing as fast as possible. And I felt like that was a problem for Tyler Adams was almost trying to execute too quickly and getting himself caught up as a result. I think Tyler Adams is almost too Red Bull at times. I think he's almost (laughs) too too aggressive, yeah. Yeah. too, you know, forward facing, too driving forward. And I think a lot of those traits are good and they worked really well under Jesse Marsh and with the New York Red Bulls in Major League Soccer. But mm-hmm. I talked about in our Champions League preview show that we did last week. We'll have more of that later this week. But I talked about in the context of RB Leipzig, Julian Nagelsmann has changed how this team attacks. Now, yes, they do rely on transitions just like every team does, but they're a possession team. They're a pressing team, but they're also a possession team. And that means that you have to show some composure on the ball. I understand what you're saying, Taylor. I think that's a great comparison, wanting to go out and prove yourself as quickly as possible. I think that's human nature in a lot of ways. Yep. But what I think Tyler Adams still has to learn is to play within this slightly more relaxed but still up-tempo possession style that RB Leipzig have. Maybe don't come on four minutes in after he came into this game. He overhits a long, lofted ball into the box. He's trying to find a teammate making a run into the box but Adams had space. He had space to be patient. He had time around. He had time to, to wait and pick out the right pass. The pass that he played was overhit, number one. And the runner really wasn't open. So I think that just is one example in the 68th minute of Tyler Adams rushing a little bit and, mm-hmm. and it didn't serve him particularly well. Yeah. I, I also think. Like he's in terms of that rushing, in terms of the way he's playing, it's a positive and a negative in my mind, because like on the surface, when he tries to close somebody down 15 yards and just gets turned really easily, which did happen a couple times in this game. It's a thing we've talked about pretty regularly with him is the sort of using his speed to try to mark two people at the same time. But that leaves him having to make up a little bit. And when you're trying to make up, you're not thinking proactively. And so you can get beat. He gets turned a few times in this game. The only like silver lining I see, we had a question recently, Joe, you and I did about the difference between Julian Nagelsmann's uh, RB Leipzig when it comes to their press and say you're in Klopp's press with Liverpool. Uh, I think fundamentally a big part of Klopp's is that he does not want players getting beaten. He does not want them diving in. The whole point of Gagan pressing is that you swarm, you pressure, you force your opponent to make a mistake. 
If you go flying in and they get away from you, you have effectively put the entire team at risk because now everybody has to adjust because you have like tried to do too much and pulled everybody into your vortex of intensity. Whereas I don't, I'm assuming that's not as big of an issue with RB Leipzig under Julian Nagelsmann, just because it does seem to happen to Tyler Adams, but we don't hear that corresponding scream. We don't hear him getting dressed down. We don't hear Nagelsmann talk about it. Maybe he deals with it privately, and that's why. But I guess I wonder if when you see a player do a thing kind of consistently, and it doesn't feel like it sets off the coach, like it makes that coach get really, really angry, I do wonder if Nagelsmann is as maybe even as concerned about it as you and I might be. And I don't know the answer to that question. We don't know, but it's interesting to think about. Call Nagelsmann up. Find it out. <laughs> You're so right. I think we had a listener yeah. question recently talking about if Thomas Tuchel calls you up and asks you a question, maybe we can uh, just yeah. turn the tables and call Nagelsmann yeah. instead. Let's do that. Sure. <laughs> I, I think we can see the pattern of Adams overstepping and being overly aggressive, yeah. unnecessarily aggressive. Part of that is just his game, but I do think it can be refined. I do think that can be worked on. But what's so fascinating to me is we didn't see that back in November, or maybe I just didn't notice it back Mm -hmm. in November, the last time we saw Tyler Adams with the United States. I remember that Wales game, and Adams was basically flawless defensively. He cut out passing angles. He stepped to the ball at the right time, but he didn't step too far. And now I kind of want to go back and watch Adams in that game again to see if Mm -hmm. I either miss something or if he really just was that good. And maybe this is a poor run of form, or maybe this is an, an instruction from Nagelsmann. I guess I'm just confused trying to compare that November window where we saw Adams with the United States and now with Leipzig because it's clear that he is overstepping now, but I just don't think he was doing that before. I mean, it may, it could well be that that's a thing that Greg Burhalter has specifically said, I don't want you doing. I, you, we can't afford for you defenders or you all in potentially vulnerable positions to get beaten 1v1. So fundamentally, I do not want you gambling there. And maybe he's been given a bit more license to gamble by Nagelsmann. Cause I could see that, that maybe that is a veteran player Nagelsmann is trusting to like, sometimes you gotta try to make a play and it doesn't work and sometimes it does and that's okay. Maybe he got that instruction from Burhalter of, I don't want you gambling there. I don't want you rolling the dice. I want you making the more defensively sound play. And maybe that explains the difference. I'm probably reaching, but I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case, just because if you were so strong in that way under Burhalter, I don't think it would just be complete regression under Nagelsmann. I'm hoping it's maybe a bit more intentional than that. And it's also true that Leipzig just play better teams than the U.S. did back in November. And so (laughs) Leipzig have to press harder. Adams is probably working harder. And so I don't know. There could be any number of different factors behind this. But yeah, I mean, it is a trend. It is an undeniable trend in Adams' game where he comes in too hard, gets turned, and then Leipzig suffer because of it. And I'm going to keep watching for that. I know you will as well. We'll be keeping our eyes on that trait to see if it goes away or if it's maybe turned in a way that Adams can use it to his advantage. Yeah, that'd be, I, I don't, how, do you have any ideas how he could turn it to his advantage aside from like, make sure he's got somebody covering so that if he does overcommit, maybe the attacker takes a heavy touch? Like, wh- what do you envision there? I think it would be just keeping the same mentality, keeping the same aggression, but refining the technique. Okay. I remember I played basketball growing up and, and when you close out, when you close down the ball, it's very similar to soccer terminology. Let's say there's a three point shooter about to take a shot and you want to go pressure that shot. So you sprint towards him, but at the end you chop your feet so that you keep your weight, you know, kind of back a little bit. And that way you don't get beaten if the guy decides to drive on you and go to the basket. It's the same principle in soccer. You've got to chop your feet so that you slow your momentum down so you don't get burned. If Adams can keep his aggressive mentality but refine his closing out technique to steal that basketball terminology, I think that's how he takes a bad situation and makes it into a good one. 
I heard all you said. Let's talk basketball for a moment, Joe. Please. How much basketball did you play? I didn't know this. I played for five five years, I think. Yeah, five years. You pre- are you pretty solid? Can you shoot that, Jay? I'm okay. Uh, I know there was a uh, a basketball 1v1 game between Scuffed and uh, USMNT videos on Twitter that was actually like live streamed. And I think I could beat Bells, but I would lose to uh, to Sanjeev, who runs that other account. <laughs> so I'd say I'm somewhere middle tier, at least in the U.S. men's national team Twitter sphere. Uh, you would roast me if we played basketball. <laughs> if that, that, basketball is one of the sports that I just like, no matter how hard I tried, I can never not look awkward and uncomfortable and I can't shoot. I'm the type to like, it went near the rim. That counts as like mostly on target. That's gotcha. my style of basketball. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I'd like to make you feel better, but I'm not sure I can. I'm not sure. I don't I think you can either. Instead, <laughs> why don't you see if you can make Patrick Delaney feel better by answering his question? We do have some list of questions we're going to pepper in here. The first one from Patrick Delaney. Some U.S. men's national team fans have been vocal about their concerns about Tyler Adams playing time and or role at Leipzig. Uh, both the kind of lack of consistent starts in the center of the park combined with him usually being played as a right back when he does start is what Patrick is alluding to. At the same time, Tyler is very often the youngest player on the field for Leipzig. Are supporters getting ahead of themselves? Yes. And not letting a young player just develop, or is it worth looking for a move when he will be where he will be a team's starting number six? There's a lot to unpack here, and so I want to take it bit by bit. Uh, Patrick specifically references people being concerned about Tyler Adams' playing time. I don't mm-hmm. think that should be a concern. He's getting Agreed. really solid minutes as even, you know, maybe the 13th or 14th best player on a Champions League team, on a Bundesliga contender with an asterisk maybe on that one, but on a very, very, very good Bundesliga team. I think that's fine. Tyler Adams just turned 22 over the weekend. He's getting good minutes and he's playing for an excellent coach on an excellent team. I don't think that's a problem. Um, so then the question is, are people kind of getting ahead of themselves with his development? I think that's a real part of this question as well. And are they concerned about him not getting consistent minutes at the number six? This part I'm a bit torn on because Adams, again, is 22. I think, Taylor, and correct me if I'm wrong, players are pretty much entering their prime right around 22, 23, 24. So maybe Adams is still early. But I think at this point, Adams has some pretty clearly defined weaknesses and some pretty clearly defined strengths as well. But that ties into this whole development conversation. I don't think Adams is necessarily in that Young player, oh, it's Matthew Hoppy. Let's watch him and see how he improves for Schalke. He's still only got a few minutes. No, Adams is an established pro at this point. And so then the question we need to ask ourselves is, is he getting the, is, is he playing in a spot that actually serves his skill set? And I think with Leipzig right now, he is. But if you're a men's national team fan, which is kind of where this question is coming from, and you want to see Adams at the six, then I think it's pretty fair actually to say, okay, Maybe you drop down a couple spots on the table and move to a team where you can play the number six spot. So it kind of just depends on what you're looking for and whether or not you think Adams can still develop and get a few minutes here and there at the six and have that be enough for him and for Greg Berhalter with the men's national team. Yeah, I, I'm I am honestly less concerned about this type of question than like honestly I'm more concerned about Christian Pulisic just not getting minutes under Thomas Tuchel than this sort of thing because unless Greg Berhalter is building his system on what Julian Nagelsmann is doing. Even if Tyler Adams is playing centrally as that number six, chances are he's going to be asked to do different things than he'll be asked to do when he's playing for the U.S. He won't have 
like a right back becoming another central midfielder, but the left back being advanced all the way up the field. Or if he does, it won't be with the exact same patterns and rotations that you see with Leipzig. So it to me, it's not as much a matter of the like he's playing the exact same position. So he knows exactly what to do every single time. It's more about adaptability and coachability. And I think that's what he's showed pretty consistently with Leipzig and in his overall career, that he's able to adjust to what's being asked of him and to execute what his coach is asking him to do. And that to me is really important. So if he's playing really high level soccer with Leipzig and playing the Champions League and starting games, it stands to reason to me then that he's still going to be under a lot of pressure on the ball. He's still going to be forced to find passing options and link up with teammates and know what runs are happening and read defenses. And there's a lot of similarity to the position. It's not the same thing as like being a center back, but then also being a right midfielder where I feel like they're very different things that are being asked of you. And I don't know why those two things would ever mix. So I don't have as much of a problem with him sometimes being a right back, sometimes being a central midfielder, because I think the, the quality that Leipzig have both in the team and in Nagelsmann means that he is constantly evolving and adapting and improving. And and that's what I want from our players. It's when they're being asked to do a very specific thing and that's it. And that doesn't really vibe with what the national team needs looking in Daryl DK's direction uh, that I, I have more concerns. And we'll talk about Daryl DK later, but for now I am, I am not as concerned with Tyler Adams. I want him to stay with Leipzig. I would rather, I would like him to become the quarterback for Leipzig as I think was promised earlier in the season. Uh, but for now I'm good with him being there in whatever role it might be. And yeah, to add one more thing here, I think as I'm thinking through this, the only reason for Adams to move or the only reason for people out there, you know, you and I included to advocate for Adams to move is if we think he will develop to fit the men's national team better in a team and in a role where he is consistently playing as a number six. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if he moves to Borussia Mönchengladbach, which is maybe too, too high level of an example during the Champions League as well, I don't know if Adams would start at the six for them. But if he made that move and, and started every game at the six, you know, that's great, but that's really only great if he develops his passing game. That's really only great if he continues to refine his game defensively. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not sure that's going to happen. I don't want to be doomsday over here, but I don't know that Adams is going to change who he is as a player in any dramatic sense. And so, you know, if you think that's going to happen, great. Then I think it's smart to advocate for a move to another team where he can play as the six every single week. If you don't think that's going to happen, though, you know, why move? Adams yeah. is a good player no, for RB Leipzig. Yeah. I think he's in a good spot if you think, and I, I fall into this camp, if you think that he is, if he is the player that he is right now, and I don't think that's going to change. Yeah, I mean, maybe he works like all season on his incisive passing, his line breaking passing ability. And there are then options because like that is a vulnerability for Dortmund right now in the center of the park. I don't think they have as many players who can cover a bunch of ground, do the defensive job, but still play good attacking soccer. And to your point, the good incisive attacking passing, I wouldn't say is Tyler Adams strong suit. So like even some of those teams that are in the same conversation as Leipzig, I don't see that working out for him because I don't think he has the skill set to go in there and immediately boss that position. I think in my mind, it's the same thing as when Pulisic was with Dortmund before he moved. And we would always get those questions about, is it time he moved? If so, where? Where is the next logical place for Pulisic? Where should he go? And we kind of kept going back to like, he shouldn't go anywhere. Like he's playing for one of the best teams in Germany, which is one of the best leagues in the world. He's going to be in the Champions League. He's he's like viewable every weekend. He's visible every weekend. He's increasing his branding on that level. Like it makes sense for him to stay there. And I think the same goes for Tyler Adams. So I would be sad if he moved. I would definitely be sad if he moved to like Hoffenheim or somebody further down the table. No shots at Hoffenheim, just that I don't want him to leave a club the size of Leipzig 
in terms of their stature in the Champions League and such for a team that wouldn't give him those opportunities, I say stay and fight and continue to develop, if not revolutionize your game. Agreed, 100%. All right. Well, we will have more Americans to talk about, more questions to answer. But first, let's take a break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We are back. Joe, we've talked Tyler Adams. I'm going to take us to Portugal to talk Reggie Cannon. I was not planning to talk Reggie Cannon on today's show. Then I checked what Boavista uh, did this past weekend, which is where Reggie Cannon is playing. Despite being in the relegation zone, they drew 2-2 two to two with uh, FC Porto, or Joe's, the dictatorship, I guess, Joe, is not going well <laughs> for you so far, if you're letting your club draw 2-2 two two with a struggling team. Let's just say it won't happen again. All right. <laughs> that sounded awesome and ominous all at once. <laughs> but they drew with Porto, and the thing that stood out to me about this, aside from that result, was that they did so by playing a back five, basically, and Reggie Cannon was that right wing back. So for everyone who has asked, could the U.S. have right wing back? Could Reggie Cannon play there? My answer is mostly yes, from what I saw this yep. past weekend. Oh, yeah. I thought he was very good in his attacking moves. Uh, I sent Joe a couple clips. Uh, two, like One of them back-to-back was a very good, I think, attacking sequence where he gets the ball sort of driven at him while he's at full sprint. He takes a good first touch, plays in a good cross. Albert Elise just can't make 100% contact with it. Otherwise, I think it's a goal, but it's still a good sort of pass-pass-pass link-up sequence that shows how good he can be in the attack. And then immediately after that is is a good defensive play where he's 1v1 with Jao Mario. Porto have time like between midfield and their goal so that uh, the player on the ball has time and space to pick out that run, sees the space in behind Reggie Cannon, sees that Jao Mario is onside and this could be a very dangerous ball and I think would have been because Jao Mario is not slow and and I think maybe surprised Reggie Cannon a little bit with his pace. But a key thing is that Reggie Cannon spots oh, this could be a mismatch. It is now going to be a foot race here. And as that ball is played, as he turns uh, to make the pursuit run, he sort of bumps into Jao Mario. And that is such an important, tiny little defender trick that it almost can be a foul, but it's never going to be called. But it's that sort of, you just, it's the bump and run. You just give them a little bit of a bump so that you put them off their, like their natural running style and it's going to make them slow up and adjust. And by the time they're able to get back to full speed, you've gotten that half yard advantage, which Reggie Cannon then uses for a nice slide tackle to put the ball out of bounds. But I thought that was solid in the 1v1 defending, solid in the attack. And then I also thought his positioning overall was very good. I have more to say about that, but I don't want to go too far. So Joe, uh, thus far from what you've seen of Reggie Cannon in a wing back, how you feeling about it? I feel pretty good about it. I don't feel great about it, but I don't yeah. feel great about Reggie Cannon, which again, sounds harsh, but he's he's a good but not great player. He's a serviceable option at right back, or right wing back for, you know, a solid club. He can do better than Boavista in terms of his ability to compete in either a better league or just simply a better team within the Portuguese mm-hmm. first division. So I feel I feel good, but not great about Reggie Cannon at right wing back. I do want to go back to that bump and run 
thing you just mentioned with his defensive ability in this specific moment against Porto. I guess we're just going to make all the cross-sport references today, but that reminds me of in American football, in football when Mm -hmm. you're defending against a pass and you're a cornerback or you're just any sort of defensive player responsible for covering a receiver. And and you want to bump that player early or you want to bump that player to just get them off of their route, get them off yeah. of their offensive movement. First five Cannon, yards, right? That's when it's legal? Exactly. You only have a limited amount of time to do that in, in football. In soccer, you have much more time to do that within reason. And so if you're Reggie Cannon, you want to get into that opposing attacking player and you want to muscle him off his run a little bit so that you can you can get him out of rhythm and then eventually intercede and make that defensive play. Reggie mm-hmm. Cannon is... Solid. That's such a smart defensive trick, like you said, Taylor. That's such a smart thing to do to disrupt the opposing attacker's rhythm. And I honestly think that embodies Reggie Cannon. He's a smart player. He's a solid player. He's not necessarily the most flashy of players. And at the end of the day, that's just fine. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely, Joe, I appreciate you kind of repainting the picture because that is the key part of it is that as he's like turning to make that run, it's those first couple steps where there's that contact. And I think the reason why it doesn't get given as a foul is because number one, it's not aggressive enough to knock John Mario over and then it's an obvious foul, but it's also sort of, it's, it looks natural. It looks like a natural by- byproduct of he's turning to sprint at full speed, but he's tracking the ball. So obviously maybe there's going to be a little bit of a bump with the attacking player just because because you're not as focused on where they are, but it's definitely deliberate. And if he does that 20 yards down the field when they're both running at full speed and John Mario falls over, it is almost certainly going to be a foul there, probably a booking, because now you've knocked a player off as you're in a 1v1 foot race that maybe you're going to lose. So that just instant read and instant contact, I think, is so important. I agree with you that like there's still a lot to be worked on, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the quality of team he plays for when we get to another question. But I did then pay attention to how he was adjusting to the new position and trying to figure things out. And early in the game, what I kept seeing with Porto was Jal Mario would stay very, very wide. If he would start to drift central, then Malang Sar, the left back, would drift forward and stay very, very wide. And I think the point there was to pin that right wing back or right back if they'd been in a back four. But for this conversation, they're in the back five with Reggie Cannon. The idea, I think, is to make him feel like he has to go out and mark that player. He has to stay close to them, but with Bovista playing a very tight back three, that opens up huge gaps, and now there's tons of space to run into, and early in the game, he does cheat out to try to deal with John Mario, make sure he's kind of, not necessarily in touching distance, but close enough that he can be if need be, and now there's a 30-yard gap the ball gets played into for one of Porto's other attackers to run in on, and from that moment on, I saw him do a much better job of splitting the difference, of sort of making that pass look like it was on, but also putting himself in a position that it never felt like it was truly on. So even if it did happen, it wasn't in a threatening position for Porto. And at the same time, he covered that space. So you didn't get as many sort of driven through balls. The ones that you did were usually either overhit because they were trying to find even more space or they were cut out by Reggie Cannon or another defender because his positioning was better. So that also did make me very, very happy. Uh, but you're right. It was not as though he was the lockdown defender who then scored five goals and we should all be excited about Reggie Cannon, our future starting right wing back. But that's fine, right? We're going to have, as the player pool continues to get stronger, and I think it is going to continue to get stronger, there are going to be good but not great players. And this summer, mm-hmm. when, or not just this summer, but through all of 2021, really starting 
in okay scratch that it is the summer headed into the fall and then into the winter but you get the idea throughout this yeah. year mm-hmm. there are going to be so many games even 30 games that the u.s men's national team could be playing which is bonkers that's insane right that's so many games for a national team when there are games coming thick and fast you need reggie cannons you need players like him who can come in and do the job you're not overly concerned about their ability to perform against costa rica or against honduras or against panama and you say okay you can go out there and you can do the job and you can give Sergio Dest a break. That is a huge role. That's a hugely important role. And Reggie Cannon is just the kind of player who can do that role perfectly. I agree, which takes us to our next question. You got to it a little bit earlier when you were talking about the quality of Boavista in the Portuguese league. Jonathan Nelson asked the same question. For Americans who move abroad, the move is often viewed and debated in comparison to the new league or team. For example, Reggie Cannon going from Dallas to Boavista, and then you get Major League Soccer to the Portuguese league. Uh, what is the better situation? Is it going from an elite team in a league generally on par with Major League Soccer, like Brendan Aronson moving to RB Salzburg? Or is it better to go to a lower level team in a better league like Reggie Cannon since it is player specific? Uh, Well said, Jonathan. It definitely is. What are the considerations? This is a tough one because I think Mm -hmm. Jonathan asked and answered his own question. I'm not entirely (laughs) sure about that, but Jonathan, it is player specific. And it's a good question, right? I wish there was a general answer to this where we could just say, oh, yep, this is a good move. This is a bad move. This league is better than MLS. That means it's going to work out well for this player. Or this league is worse than MLS. It's, it's, you know, not a worthwhile move, but we can't say that it is hugely player specific. And I think it depends on a few different things. So this is my attempted answer to this question to actually get into some of those considerations that Jonathan mentions. Mm-hmm. One of them is playing time. If Reggie Cannon goes to Boavista and they have a right back or a right wing back that they value more than Cannon and Cannon's never going to play. I don't think that move is super worthwhile for a player in his position, for a player who's looking to move on from FC Dallas and continue to elevate his career. That doesn't have a lot of value to me, but if it's Brendan Aronson and you can go and get minutes and and the same things happen with Reggie Cannon, you go and you play, that has value. Whether you're in a league that's you know technically better than Major League Soccer or technically worse than Major League Soccer, playing time is big. Another one for me is kind of related to that. Does the move give you upward mobility? Can you use that club as a jumping off point if you're at the stage in your career where that's your main goal? For Brendan Aronson, RB Salzburg is a great jumping off point. If he can continue to establish himself there, that's going to be huge for his career. RB Salzburg sells players to Champions League teams. The rest of the Austrian Bundesliga does not do that. The rest of the Austrian Bundesliga Mm -hmm. is by and large not even on par with Major League Soccer, as Jonathan mentioned in that question. It's not a great league, but with RB Salzburg, the situation is yeah. different, right? There are so many different factors. You know, do the, does the club sell players? Are you going to get playing time? Does the team that you're going to play a style that fits your game? The, I mean, the list goes on. There's probably more that I didn't think of, but those three are kind of the main three that I have in my head. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's just really, really player specific. Yeah, I think if I were forced to go with a very general answer, I think I tend to prefer players moving to larger teams in smaller leagues, like the Brendan Aronson route, because I do think, to your point, Joe, it's it's more of an established thing of like, oh, like Salzburg produced players that are going to be Champions League caliber players for lots of other clubs. So the next guy coming through is the next guy who's going to have eyes on them. There are scouts everywhere. There are scouts watching every single game. There are certainly scouts watching Reggie Cannon. But I think if Boavista had this reputation for like, oh, all of their players that they develop end up being key performers, 
there are going to be more teams naturally watching him. So I think from a development and then further movement standpoint, it's probably better to go to one of those clubs where there is more of a like pipeline and you know that you're going to be part of that pipeline. You're not jumping to a huge club where it's like, hopefully we find a way to use you, but if not, you're making money and you're sitting on the bench. That's cool, right? With Aronson, it feels like, oh, he's being brought in. They have this record of developing players and moving them on. They're moving on Subasly now. It seems like they've got a vacancy. Oh, now he's already in there. And it's like he's kind of plugged in and away we go. And I really do like that a lot. I think a big aspect of that is the stability there. Because even when you have coaching changes and maybe there's different approaches here and there, for the most part, because it is that RB system, you sort of know what you're moving into and you know what it's going to be like. And I contrast that with, say, Christian Pulisic moving to Chelsea, where I was pretty apprehensive about that to begin with. Then it seems like, oh, he's fitting in. He's kind of part of what like th- they're doing and it fits his style really, really well. Now, would I say, like, if if that were an option now of like, okay, he's going to move to Dortmund to Chelsea this season, is that a thing you want? I look at their style and think, I'm not sure there are as many opportunities for him, and I have some concerns there. So I think you do have to factor in the stability, and just because the manager right now plays a style you like, long term, does that club fit with your view of what your career is going to be? I think that also has to be a factor for players. No, I think that's a great point. You can't just... You can't just jump at the first opportunity necessarily. There need to be criteria that you use to figure out if the move is the right idea. They're depending on the stage that you are in your career, which I guess is another big criteria here. Depending on that stage, you know, that you're in, there is an opportunity to say, okay, I need to think short term or I need to think long term. And if you're a younger player, it's hard to say. Again, it's specific of, of whether, you know, you're in one situation versus another situation. It might be better for you to think short term or it might be better for you to think long. I mean, there are so many, you can go around and around and I kind of am at this point. So I'm going to stop talking, Mm -hmm. but you can just, you can circle around in the hamster wheel and and pick out factor after factor. And it's still just going to be hugely dependent on the situation and on the player. Yeah, maybe we should just wait and see what happens with, say, Brendan Aronson at RB Salzburg versus Josh Sargent at Werder Bremen. And whoever gets, like, more moves and more looks, maybe <laughs> maybe that's our answer it to the question. It. I love All right, it. cool. Uh, but for now, I think, yeah, Jonathan did a good job of answering his own question by saying it is very player-specific. Uh, and so those would be some of the considerations I would have. Jonathan, I hope we've answered that well. Joe, let's talk about another player, then we'll take a break. But that player is one that we often talk about, as I said in the very introduction to the show. It's Yunus Musa. Uh, how did Yunus Musa do this weekend? Yunus Musa did okay. He wasn't great. <laughs> Is it was it an okay weekend? I feel like it was an okay weekend it was, for Americans. Yeah, it wasn't. Okay. It wasn't an exceptional weekend, and that's that's yeah. fine. You know that happens sometimes. That's just the way it goes. Yunus Musa came on at the start of the second half for Real Madrid, and and Valencia are already down two to nothing at this point. They had a really poor first half. Madrid was dominating that game, which is not altogether unexpected. So Musa comes on and he actually plays mostly as a left midfielder instead of a right midfielder. The roles are very similar. Both of those tend to stay wide at times. Other times those midfielders come inside and play almost in the, the half spaces on the right side or the left side. And so Musa came in on the left and turned the ball over a couple times, held onto the ball a little bit too long, made some poor decisions in the attacking half, still showed his athleticism, still showed his smoothness, his gliding ability, you know, when he's on the ball and moving into the attacking half. He still showed those things, but we didn't have a, uh, a Musa maneuver. Is that what we decided on last week, Taylor? Yeah, yeah, I like that one. There were no major Musa maneuvers. That's three M's in a row. I feel like I should get bonus points for that. <laughs> um, and, and overall, Taylor, my <laughs> biggest takeaway from this game was realizing a weakness, a, a kind of major weakness in Yunus Musa's game that I think we've been touching on 
but we've never actually been able to specifically state before, and I think I've got something here. All right. I'm excited to hear. Let's do it. So my takeaway from Musa in this game is that he's a little bit too much of a straight line runner right now, which is, I guess, kind of a nebulous term. But I I just mean that what I mean by that rather is it feels to me like Musa just puts his head down and runs forward when he doesn't know exactly what to do. Sometimes that works out really well for him. And we get those Musa maneuvers down the right sideline that are so beautiful. Other times, though, it doesn't work out for him when he doesn't have the structure around him or when he's not ready to make the right decision. My example from this game, and the reason why I say this mostly, is in the 81st minute against Real Madrid, Musa recovered the ball on the right side of central midfield in Valencia's half. So Madrid lost the ball, Musa gets on the ball, and as he gets on the ball, Toni Kroos is right around Musa. So Musa does a pretty logical thing and decides to burst forward into the attacking half. He starts gliding, he starts to do what he's good at, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Musa doesn't end up having any support around him on that right side, which again is fine. That's probably a Valencia structural problem, but Musa's capable of dealing with that sort of thing. But instead of kind of pulling it back when he realizes he doesn't have support, he just runs further and further and further and further forward into the attacking half, gets down by the corner flag, ends up in a 3v1 against Toni Kroos, Nacho, and Mendy, Madrid's left back. And ends up just dribbling the ball out of bounds at the end line and gets a goal kick for Real Madrid. This is, I think, part of Yunus Musa's problem. He can glide forward all day. He can beat you with his speed. He can beat you with his strength. But when it comes to needing to make the right decision to make the right pass, I think that's where he falls short a little bit. I think he would have been much better served in this moment by pulling the ball back and recycling possession for Valencia, even though they're down by multiple goals, even though there's not a ton of time left in the game, making the run and making the choice that he did was never really going to pay off in this moment. Yeah, because, I mean, going going hero and trying to dribble through an entire team, and maybe you get through three and advance the ball up the field, but if you lose the ball, you've still lost the ball, versus maybe, yeah, resetting it, it doesn't mean you, you've moved the ball up, you've put yourself in a stronger attacking position, but you've retained possession for another day. You get another opportunity. Uh, but some of what you're talking about with Yunus Musa, I think, relates to what we consistently end up talking about with Yunus Musa is the difference between where he plays at club level versus presumably for the national team, or what we think we presume he will play for the national team. Uh, Christian Ott asked, why doesn't Yunus Musa play centrally for Valencia? And I think you then, Joe, also get a lot of questions about why you are so adamant that though he plays out wide for Valencia, he will play central for the U.S. men's national team. So let's see if we can answer both of those today. The first one, I think what you've already been talking about probably factors into this a little bit in the idea that like if he is a little bit of a straight line runner if he is kind of going to go on a on a on a dribble and maybe get caught out you can afford for your wide attacker to do that less so one of your central midfielders who's then way out of position yeah and i think the overarching answer to why isn't musa playing centrally is yavi gracia probably just doesn't think that musa is a better central midfielder than the two guys that he usually plays in that 442 and that relates to the whole musa isn't the best decision maker on the ball and isn't the best distributor Right now, Carlos Soler is a 24-year-old Spanish central midfielder, and he's one of the regular starters for Gracia in that double pivot in his 4-4-2. And Soler is more of the distributor. He's more of the creator and certainly more of a distributor and creator in midfield than Musa. The other starter, the other regular starter for Valencia is Uros Rasic, who's a 22-year-old Serbian central midfielder. He's really tall. He likes to get forward. He complements Soler pretty well. And it doesn't hurt that Man United and Juventus have both been linked to Rasic. So right. I think I think those two players just are higher up in 
Javi Garcia's rankings and his central midfield rankings. And part of the reason behind that, Taylor, I think is exactly what you're saying. Musa doesn't have that incredible passing ability. He's not that great decision maker. He's more inclined to put his head down and rely on his athleticism and his skill on the ball. But I do think that phrase skill on the ball kind of can confuse people at times because when I hear that, I think, okay, put him out wide, put him as a winger and have him dribble 1v1, use that skill on the ball. But that's not quite the type of skill that Yunus Musa has on the ball. He's more of a glider, less of a 1v1 guy, which to tie into the second question is why I'm confident that under Greg Berhalter, Musa's not really going to be a regular wide player. So, but it, it, it stands to reason, though, that if he can do one for one, he could do one for the other, doesn't it? Yes and no, right? I, I think I would argue that Musa isn't actually doing a great job out wide, doing traditional winger things for gotcha. Valencia. He is playing there, but Taylor, you or I could go play right midfield for Valencia. That doesn't mean we're going to do the things that that position typically needs to do very well, right? I'm going to go out there and I'm going to struggle with things too. I'm going to struggle to beat a player 1v1 just like Musa does. That doesn't mean that, you know, I belong in that spot. And that's why I push back against that narrative when I see Musa playing as a wide midfielder, or when I see lineups that people have made with Musa as a wide midfielder, that just simply doesn't fit his skill set. I know we've been critiquing him as a central midfielder and, and pointing out an area of his game where he doesn't quite measure up to other players. But if we think about the skills that Musa does have, his ability to drive forward with the ball, he's so press resistant. He can connect simple passes and he can be this really aggressive presser in central midfield. He can do all of those things and all of those skills make him, in my mind at least, fit him into that perfect profile of a central midfielder under Greg Berhalter. He doesn't need to be the primary creator. Weston McKenney isn't going to be the primary creator. That's going to be the wide players. That's even going to be Serginho Dest at times. And so don't put Musa out wide and and take minutes away from Tim Weah or Jordan Morris or Christian Pulisic or Gio Reyna. Put him in the middle of the field, use his press resistance to build up, get forward, have him drive the ball into the attacking half, lay the ball off simply to a teammate, and then press the heck out of the other team when you lose the ball. That's why I think Musa is better as a central midfielder, even though he's not actually playing there for Valencia right now. I think that the other thing that can be sort of confusing to some folks when it comes to like you saying he should play centrally is that he feels like he should be in or around that starting 11. But our, our midfield three, and I think for a lot of people, has become Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams. There's your three. So why put him in a position where he maybe won't get to play as much or won't be an automatic starter or will knock somebody else out of contention? Is it fair to say that you don't have that same midfield three? Like, do you have Pulisic wide and that opens up spaces? Or are you just more okay with uh, a number of players rotating in and out instead of it just being a core three that start every game? I think Pulisic is going to play left wing under Greg okay. Berhalter. Not all the time. There will be times where he is playing as a central midfielder, probably against weaker CONCACAF opponents. But if we're playing Mexico tomorrow, I think Christian Pulisic is playing on the left wing. I think that's in pen. And I think Berhalter would 100% agree with that. So then that opens up a spot in central midfield for Yunus Musa, for Sebastian Legette, or for Brendan Aronson pretty much to occupy. Weston McKennie's in pen right now. Tyler Adams is in pen right now. So then that leaves that one spot. And I think Musa is the guy. I think he's the best player of Aronson, Legette, and himself. Uh, I think he's the best overall central midfielder in that spot. And I think he fits the profile the best, even though, again, he does have very clear weaknesses to his game that we've talked about. But yeah, to answer your question, it's just that I think Christian Pulisic's not going to play as a regular central midfielder. There we go. All right. Another question uh, asked and hopefully answered. Uh, more still to come. But first, a word from today's sponsors. 
Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
All right, Joe Lowry. Uh, we've talked about some players that are uh, in Greg Berhalter's starting 11 in pen, some in pencil. I'm not sure where Daryl DK is uh, <laughs> other than playing for Barnsley. Let's talk about that. He does play this past weekend in a 2-0 win over Brentford. It was 2-0, correct? Correct. You got it. All right. Uh, he... Sort of gets an assist, if we want to give it that. Uh, statistically did not have a very strong performance. Statistically had a bad performance, but I think I feel slightly better about that now than I did going into this because I kept seeing him listed as starting on the right wing, and a lot of his stats made for a very bad right wing performance. But then when I watched the game and realized that he was pretty much starting centrally in that sort of 3-4-3 that Barnsley go with, and being the outlet, the player who's kind of chasing the long balls, battling for them, being the target striker. Then suddenly him losing 13 duels but winning six, so six of 19 on the day, less of a damning statistic to me than it would have been if he were out wide, because to me that means he's just kind of not fighting for stuff as opposed to constantly having to fight for cleared balls that maybe he has a chance of bringing down. So that's my read on that game at least, Joe. Uh, we can get into some more specifics as well if you like, but I wanted to hear what you thought of Daryl DK at Barnsley so far. Yeah, that lineup was just wrong, right? I saw that everywhere yep. and it was just not right. Daryl DK played as the yep. number nine in a 3-4-3 he played 56 minutes, picked up a yellow card, had that sort of shot cross assist, if you want to be generous, to Carlton Morris on Barnsley's second goal of the game. And for people who haven't seen, I'm just going to explain this really quickly. Please, he gets yeah. the ball sort of wide of center of the goal, winds up to shoot, is definitely trying to hit it far post, and essentially ends up being a like square-driven pass that then eventually gets put in. But he is 100% trying to shoot. So it would be a, a clever pass or a very disguised clever pass. It would be a genius pass if he had meant to do that. But I'm pretty sure he was winding up for a shot. So maybe not so much credit where it's due there. I saw Taylor Twelman tweet. Yeah, he uh, he was shooting, everybody, just to clarify. Yeah. Something to that effect. <laughs> yeah. He was. Yeah. He was shooting. He was not passing. Daryl DK is not a, a legendary distributor as of yet. He probably will yet. never be. But, but you, know, you never know what could happen. In this game, the biggest thing I noticed from Daryl DK, actually strike that, one of the two biggest things I noticed from Daryl DK is that he looked strong. Sometimes it was yeah. a good good kind of strong. He didn't have any issues bodying the championship defenders that he was playing against. He held up the ball pretty well at the beginning of the game. He had some sloppy touches, but he was, as you said, Taylor, the outlet for Barnsley. He was responsible for winning the ball after they play long from goal basically every single time. It was Daryl DK's job to to contribute and bring that ball down. And that's just an impossible task, right? You can't do that every single time. You can't win every single ball. And so I think generally he looked good strong, but other times he looked out of control strong. He just shoved mm -hmm. a guy on the ground in the 55th minute. I don't know if you saw that, Taylor. He literally just, just shoved him as he was kind of drifted out towards the left wing. He I just pushed not. a guy. Um, he fouled a couple of Brentford players, but he also drew fouls, to be fair. So a really kind of confusing performance from Daryl DK in that sometimes he used his strength to you know really great effect, and other times it was less of an asset and more of a hindrance. Yeah. Uh, the thing that I saw with, with DK, both in this game and in his uh, substitute appearance against Chelsea, was he's learning how Barnsley play. And I oversimplified it earlier by saying he's just like the target guy. There's no just to it. That's a really difficult role. But in terms of the way Barnsley press as well, there's a lot of sometimes pressing, sometimes dropping in to then press once everybody. It's like the pressing trigger thing of once everybody's in the right position, then they'll go, then they'll step. And I just saw him, especially against Chelsea when he comes on, 
it's just not automatic. He's not up to speed yet. He doesn't know exactly what they want to do. And by contrast, uh, Collie Woodrow is starting in that Chelsea game. And I saw him do a lot of, as soon as the ball goes to one center back, he sprints between them and cuts it off and trusts that the center midfielder in Golo Kante in that one is going to be covered by somebody else. DK would sort of wait and look and check and make sure somebody was going to cover and then he would go press. And because of that, I saw him pretty consistently like not being in the exact right position. So he could be passed around or he would go too far past the center backs. And then that pass was back on. And I think he was still sort of, you could just see him like looking and making sure he was doing the right thing and then doing it. And that second of hesitation, that two seconds of checking to make sure I'm doing the right thing before going, that had a negative impact. I saw less of that against Brentford. I think part of that is down to it being Brentford versus Chelsea. I think part of it is down to him being just a bit more comfortable with the system. And I'm hoping that as we see him get increasingly comfortable and it just becomes second nature to him, those delays don't happen. And he is as effective of a presser and defensive striker uh, as we know he can be in front of goal. And if I think if he can combine those, he'll be a very good performer for Barnsley uh, for years to come. Uh, if not, maybe that loan doesn't get made permanent. We'll just see how it goes. I want you to tell me if I'm overreacting on Daryl DK, because I think it's an important point that you just brought up about he's just kind of learning the system. He's yeah. just learning how to do things. My other biggest observation from this game and a little bit from that Chelsea game that you just referenced, it looks to me like Daryl DK doesn't know how to move with purpose on both sides of the ball. Defensively, you just talked about it. But offensively in this game, it was the 23rd minute, Barnsley get out on the counter, DK's running right up the middle of the field, and he's got a teammate, Carlton Morris, as the left winger, running with the ball on the left wing. So it's the two of them out on the break. Carlton Morris gets into the box and plays a low looping ball into DK, but DK is not open. He's not open because of great defending, but he's not open because he hasn't actually moved anywhere. He sort of drifted off the center back's back shoulder. But there were no hard runs. There was no sharp movement or or fakes in the box to create space for himself. DK didn't do any of those things. And so the ball from Morris is just cut out by a Brentford defender and the attack ends from there. And so what I'm wondering, Taylor, is is do I need to be patient with DK's off-ball movement, with his defensive movement, with both of them? Does one apply more to that new team situation than the other? I think both. I think you've got to be patient with both just because we're talking about what, a 20-year-old? I think he's still 20. Yeah, he is. Uh, who, who was at UVA, has one year, really, of, of professional soccer under his belt, and it's a very turbulent year with COVID. He's really young, and I think, like, I don't mean this to be negative. It's just, to me, a reality is that he's really young and he's young as a 20-year-old. Whereas, like, Christian Pulisic, when he was 20, because of his uh, European passport, that certainly doesn't help. But because he's been playing with Dortmund, too, for so long and in their academy, it feels like at 20, he is still more of a veteran than I would say DK is. That DK coming out of college, having the one season, now he's on loan in the championship. It's been a... It's been him moving up every single time. It's just how do you deal with that? How do you sort of learn to function at that level? Uh, Joe, are you familiar with the Peter Principle? I'm not. Fill me in. Uh, it's it's. Uh, I didn't know about it until Daryl told me about it. But it's the idea that like everybody gets promoted until eventually they reach a position where they're not competent. Like so, eventually you will be promoted into a position where you are incompetent, just because. 
like if you keep succeeding and succeeding and succeeding, eventually you're going to be asked to do something that is fundamentally different. If you were like the great number two at a company and this great company needs somebody to come in, maybe you'll make that jump. But maybe you were an effective number two and you weren't meant to be CEO for Daryl DK. Like we just don't really know yet because it's so early that he's gone from college ball to OKC Energy, I think, for a couple games. Then he's in Major League Soccer. That probably happens at the same time. Now it's in the championship, and it's just been move and move and move. And I think we've got to see how he adjusts to that and how quickly he does, because he came alive with Orlando City. We know that. If he does the same with Barnsley, then it feels like, okay, like he's got more levels to go up before we have to start worrying. But for now, I think we just have to kind of see how he adjusts on the ball, off the ball, in defense, in attack, all of those things. It's just early, but if he's able to adjust and look more seamlessly part of that team, I only am optimistic about things. Wow, I have nothing to add to that. Thank you for being the rational half of us today, and specifically with DK. <laughs> Taylor, that was that was so true, so wise, and yeah, I don't have anything else to say. All right, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> that, that just means I'm going to say something stupid later on. That's how it works. Uh, but before I do that, let's talk about John Brooks, who I would say is another player to go back to your players whose names are written in pen when it comes to the starting 11 for the U.S. national team. That is definitely the case. And it is the case because John Brooks is very good. It is also the case that because he has been so consistent in where he's been playing, the level he's been playing at. And when he comes, when it comes to the national team, there are mistakes here and there, but he is still so clearly our number one center back that it like, I'm, I'm, excited for the day when that is not the case not again not a shout at john brooks just because it means that we have other center backs who can enter that conversation i don't see that necessarily changing anytime soon and i don't see john brooks necessarily getting worse anytime soon but joe what did you see from him in uh in evaluating him this weekend i love john brooks i love (laughs) john brooks because (laughs) he does so many fun things on the ball which i really really love if you if you've listened to me talk for basically any more than five minutes ever in the past you probably will have heard me talk about that so i love john brooks because he's a fun offensive-minded center back but I also love John Brooks because he is exactly who he is at this point. He has not changed his game in several years, and I don't think his game is going to change in the next couple of years. When you watch John Brooks for one game even, you can get a perfect read on the kind of player he is. And I hadn't actually watched John Brooks' footage in a while now. So when I went back and watched his 90 minutes in Wolfsburg's nil-nil draw with Borussia Mönchengladbach from Sunday— uh, I, I kind of just wanted to check in. How is he doing? How is he playing? Has anything changed? And the answer to that, in case I haven't spoiled it already, is no. Nothing has changed. John Brooks is still doing his thing. He's still pinging passes. He's still dribbling a little bit. He's still winning balls in the air. And maybe most importantly, he's still weak defensively. I feel like there that's taboo <laughs> to say. I know. I, I kind of build up to that. No, it's not. It's really not. But people uh, like, get so defensive about John Brooks, Taylor. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe this mm-hmm. is just Twitter. But if you say a bad thing about John Brooks or about the center back depth chart, people are kind of just jumping down your throat with John Brooks, John Brooks, John Brooks. And he's a good player. He does so many things really well. But man, the the biggest weakness and a really important weakness in his game is that he is wobbly. He is traffic cone-ish at times defensively. Yeah. In the 35th minute, real quick, it was just bad defending. Gladbach were attacking right down the middle. They got to the edge of Wolfsburg's box. Uh, An attacker has the ball and goes right at Brooks, and Brooks kind of swings one of his legs out to try and poke the ball away. But it's pretty desperate, and he ends up kind of losing his balance and ending up on the ground at the end of this play. It's just not good defending, but that's John Brooks at this point. You have to take the bad with the good, and that hasn't changed, and that's likely not going to change. No, and like, and I think this is like what I was trying to get at with my explanation of John Brooks is sort of that 
he is going to have one of those, if not every game, then every now and then. And it happens with the national team, too. Like, I can't remember what game it was, but I remember him just completely whiffing on a long ball. I think it was when Klinsman was still in charge. It's like a long ball, and he goes to clear it and just whiffs, and it leads to an attack, if not a goal, for the opposition. And he has those moments where it's just like, oh, John Brooks, know what happened. It's just such a strange thing that... We don't end up, I think, being as critical or talking about it as much on this show just because I think he has been consistently playing at a level that is better than any other center back in our pool, at yep. least right now. Yep. But then also just is better than any other center back in our pool right now. So it's sort of, um, I don't know, to some extent, it feels a bit like I'm just trying to think of a player who's like, I don't know, like, like criticize if you're a Barcelona fan and like criticizing Lionel Messi for that work rate, which is something I do as well. And then we get people mad at us for that because <laughs> okay. he does so many other things. And it's just like, yeah, but fundamentally, it's a little messy. Yeah, fundamentally, it's John Brooks. We know he's going to start. So why go too hard on him? Why really like rake him over the coals for this mistake when we know like he is still our best defender and two things can be true at the same time. Things can be two things that he can be our best center back, but also he can be prone to these mistakes. And you're absolutely right in this game. It is letting a defender turn 20, 25 yards from, from their goal. That's mistake. Number one, if the defender, if the player has their back to you, the defender, that's when you want to be extra aggressive and try to make them uncomfortable, let them know you're there, make them take a bad touch, make them dribble away from goal. But Brooks lets the, the attacker turn and then doesn't close down still. And that, gap is what then allows the attacker to get the motivation to get sort of the the momentum to go at him makes brooks stab which he absolutely does he stabs in and gets just gets beaten really really quickly and it's that type of moment that it's like distressing to see but it's like yeah but for the u.s the next time he'll make a play and that's fine so it's like it's a good thing to talk about and yet he could score three own goals in a row and i would still be like yeah but it's fine he'll figure it out it's john brooks it is john brooks i don't think there's I don't really know how to say it any more, you know, smartly yeah. than that. E- eloquent, eloquently. Wow. Eloquently. <laughs> Good gracious. How do I, Taylor, how do you like borderline employ me to be on this show? Like what, what on earth is going on? I think I mean, it's hit, borderline. That's why I, I think I've hit the ceiling, right? I think I've hit, you know, the Peter principle. I am, I am at my, uh, my top level of incompetence right now, but no, John yeah, Brooks, I think. <laughs> I think that's maybe being a little bit harsh on yourself. Just maybe. <laughs> I appreciate that. John Brooks is is exactly who he is. And I find great comfort in that in some weird twisted way. I kind of find that same comfort with Tyler Adams. It's early. and I'm not willing to say that Adams has stopped developing or anything like that, but I'm closer to saying it about Tyler Adams than I was a year ago because he's getting older. Mm -hmm. And when he hits his, his established prime and we have a full read on who he is as a player, then he can fully join John Brooks in this company. But man, I still love watching John Brooks. He's still the best possession center back that the U.S. has. I don't think he's the best defensive center back that the U.S. has by a long shot, but that's fine. He has strengths and weaknesses just like every other player in the pool. Uh, anything else with John Brooks? No, I think I've, I think I've worn out my, uh, my John Brooks <laughs> conversation meter. All right. Uh, we have two list of questions remaining. There's one more player I wanted to mention, but it's not to talk about what he did last weekend. It's what he has the opportunity to do this weekend. It's Johnny Cardoso. Uh, Johnny, I saw this tweet today. I wanted to mention it here. Johnny Cardoso is the 19-year-old midfielder, could become the first American in history to win the Brazilian Serie A this weekend. With two games left to play, Internacional is top of the table, one point ahead of Flamenco, and the two teams face each other this Sunday. That is definitely true. Uh, with 36 of 38 games played, uh, Internacional has 69 points, Flamenco 68. So, 
if they get that win, Johnny Cardoso wins the Brazilian League, and that would be the first for an American. So check back this time next week to see if he did that. But I did just want to give a shout out to Johnny Cardoso and let people know that that could be happening this weekend. Uh, and with that said, I think we've talked about plenty of young Americans. Let's talk about some listener questions. Uh, final two. The first one comes from Richard Rolson. Why don't we see more American players playing in Liga MX? Uh, would some American players help their development playing in Mexico? I think the reason why, Richard, we don't see more Americans playing in Liga MX, and I looked at this through a young player lens, mm-hmm. I think the reason we don't see that more is because if you're a good Major League Soccer player, especially a good young player, you're probably going to move straight to Europe, right? I mean, I don't know why you'd make that middle jump or, or almost a, an equal jump, maybe a slight step up. I don't know why you'd make that half step if you could just make the full step to Europe. And I think Europe wants that right now. I had an agent tell me recently that every American under 21 who's playing in MLS will get looks by European teams, will be looked at by European teams. Europe wants to bring over American players right now. I don't know that that's been true in the past, but it's true right now. And I don't know that that can be said of Liga Emekis. And so, yeah, if you're a good MLS player, especially a good young one, just make that jump straight to Europe. That's likely what you want, and that's likely what the actual buying teams want. Yeah, and I think like a fundamental like aspect of what you're talking about is that Major League Soccer has become more of a platform for those players to make that jump. And I think that speaks to the just the development of the league as a whole and soccer in the country. Like this will sound maybe a bit like like over the top, but it is the case and I'm going to connect it to our like our, like our political situation of a couple months ago just to say that like I have heard so many people of my parents and my in-laws generation talk about how America has like never been this divided and we're so like on like polar opposites. And to that I would say like well there was that time that we fought a civil war that was pretty divided and there was that time where in like those people's lifetime people of like different races weren't allowed to sit together. Like that was pretty divided. So like we, like I say that to say that America now is like divided, but it's certainly not as divided as it's been in the past. That's how I see things. And with that sort of in mind, I say that like, this is the strongest U S soccer has ever been. And that might sound crazy to people who are furious about the way major league soccer operates or the losses or the lack of promotion relegation or how we don't have as much grassroots funding or they're still not like it's still a suburban sport and it's pay to play there are many many issues don't get me wrong i'm not saying it's perfect i'm just saying that compare it to 20 years ago 30 years ago there are so many more people playing we have major players playing from major teams in major leagues we can watch those games on television the national team looks stronger there's depth there's dual nationals choosing to play it's a really exciting time to like soccer in this country and major league soccer is a part of that and has done a lot of work to make that happen and again you can be critical of the league but going from like the like when grant wall wrote the beckham experiment and talking about ellie galaxy's reserve team being filled out with people from the front office because they just don't have enough people and they don't have the budget for a team and look at development academies now and look at the growth of usl league one and usl championship and nisa and lots of different leagues helping give players a platform to play, but then promote them to a larger platform and then they can continue to grow. And And I think that just the state of Major League Soccer and soccer in this country is such that you don't have as many players who don't have opportunities. Still a lot, don't get me wrong, but 
Ricardo Pepe, for example, like like or I, any any of the FC Dallas players. Like, I think there's an argument that a couple seasons ago or 10 years ago, do they end up playing for FC Dallas or do they end up going to Mexico? Do they end up going to USL teams and then going to Mexico or going to other leagues where they can make that jump? I think they probably do. And I think Major League Soccer getting stronger, there being more money behind soccer in this country. It means that more players are staying here. And then because MLS has started to move towards selling players, I think there's a more logical jump. So I think the money on offer, the opportunities presented and the opportunities to make that jump to Europe, all big reasons why I think Americans aren't moving to Mexico. And looking at talent production and talent. That was a very long answer. I apologize, Joe. No, no, that was good. I think that was spot on. I don't disagree with any of that. Just to add one more thing quickly. If we look at the development landscape in the U.S. and compare it to the development landscape in Mexico, the United States is becoming or has maybe already become a better talent producer than Mexico. So maybe it's, it's, it feels weird to say, right? It like feels you don't wrong. really want to say that because you know you're going to get yelled at. Yeah, I'm right there with you of like, yeah, you look at it now and it's like I, I was shocked by how few Americans are playing in Liga MX compared to like seasons of the past when yeah. we had 10 players and you could find Americans all over that league. You just don't have it as much. It's a very strange thing. So I think at the senior level, but even especially at the youth level and for younger players, maybe somewhere in between those two levels, Making the move out of Major League Soccer and into Liga MX just makes less sense now than it would have made five or ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I also think there's certainly the language barrier that can be a factor. And uh, this is a good way of transitioning to the next question. The Mexican League itself can be problematic. <laughs> you can have teams... Promoted, but not promoted and relegated, but not relegated and owners, owners own multiple teams in the same competition. And there is more like, like chaos. And I think you have to be okay with that chaos to be able to function within it. And I, and I don't think some, some players are. And I think that is part of it as well. Uh, I will say more specific stuff when we get to the question itself, but let's ask it first. Final topic of the day. Question from Ira Jersey. With the ProRail debate never going away in the United States, I'm wondering if there have been teams in other leagues that secured promotion spots but were ineligible to move up a division due to business or sporting reasons. Uh, Prestatin? I don't speak Welsh. That looks Prestatin, good. Uh, town are the defending champions of the Welsh second division, but were passed over due to their inability to meet the first division standards. The second place team was promoted in their place. So are there others, other examples of this that we could find? Joe, I've got a few. I'm guessing you do as well. Oh, I do. And let's start with Liga Mekis. Why not? Right. Oh, uh, boy. I, have mo- I have more of just a general <laughs> take yeah. on them or general kind of, kind of bit of research that I've done. So I'm going to tee you up here in just a second. But in April 2020, Liga Mekis suspended promotion and relegation for the next five years between mm-hmm. their first league, between Liga Mekis and their second league in Mexico. So that's kind of a big one, right? That affected teams already, and that will continue to affect teams down the line for the next several years. And I just think this is kind of a direction that more more leagues will go into, or, or I, I think with all this conversation about a European Super League and all of these other things, there are going to be changes of structure for leagues like Liga MX, for high-profile leagues, and the coronavirus and the whole pandemic was a, kind of a valid reason for Liga MX to make that call, but also maybe a little bit convenient at the same time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's that, like, and that is, I guess, that's what I mean when I say that, like, 
you could say maybe it's a good business decision, but then there's also like, but is it also benefiting certain teams or right, certain right. owners more than others? And then there's moments like, uh, uh, Joe, do you mind if I go to another one from oh, the Yanakis? Please. Uh, there's the situation with, uh, Keretaro in 2013 that always comes to mind. Uh, they were relegated from Liga Mekis after the 2013 season. And it was that sort of like, I think Argentina did this once when either Boca or River were in discussions of maybe being in the relegation zone. I think Mexico changed it to you have to finish in the bottom three, like three seasons in a row before you're eligible for it, which Keretaro had. Uh, when they get relegated, owner Amado Yanez buys, uh, Jaguares. I don't know how to say Jaguar in Spanish, but I'm going to say it's Jaguares de Chiapas. Uh, and he moves them. It's a, that's the, uh, another team moves them a thousand kilometers to Keretaro <laughs> to then play in Liga Mekis so that that city has, uh, first division football, La Piedad. The winners of the second division that season were then moved to Veracruz to become that club who have since been disbanded due to financial irregularities. But in trying to figure out like what the sort of uh, like this piece moves here and that part moves, moves there and then this part became that sequence, it was impossible. Joe, it, genuinely, I was 10 minutes late recording because I was trying to track this. And I assumed it was sort of like, OK, Ketataro get relegated. Uh, so their new owner buys this club. That club moves to the city where Ketataro is. And now there's two clubs there. Another club moves to where that club used to be. And away we go. And it's not even that. It just keeps spreading and spreading of like, well, that club was going to move, but then they couldn't because of financial irregularity. So this club then did, but kept their youth team, and it's just massively confusing. All that to say that there's chaos there. But yeah, Keretaro getting relegated, and then a new club becoming another Keretaro uh, was an interesting one out of Mexico. So that was one for me. The other two that I could uh, find, one in Scotland, one in France, both relate to the sort of like uh, other than football reasons for why teams wouldn't be promoted. Uh, with both of them, it was stadium size. Falkirk in Scotland denied promotion three different times, mostly due to stadium concerns. You have to have, I think, 10,000 to be in the Scottish Premier League. Falkirk's capacity was 8,000. And then Luzanac uh, in France was the other big one. They were coming out of the third division, trying to get promoted to the second division in France. Uh, but their stadium only seated 1,200. The village of Luzanac itself has a population of 650. Not thousand six hundred and fifty people. Uh, so I think they there were concerns that could they function in uh, Ligue 2. They were not allowed to. That that promotion was blocked. The messed up thing though, Joe. Did you do any reading about this club? I didn't. This is news to me. Oh man, the, I don't even understand how this worked again. Rabbit hole of confusion. But they're supposed to go up to the second division, but then they're denied that opportunity because of stadium size, because of concerns about can they meet the financial burden. But their spot in the third division was already filled by a team that was promoted. Oh, no. So the solution was to offer them uh, to go to the fifth division. That's what happens when you win the third division. You go to the fifth division. Uh, I, th- I think Fabian Bartes was the club president at the time. They rejected that. I think they ended up either in the fifth division or I think in the seventh division had to sell all of the, or release all of their first team players because they could no longer afford to pay them because seventh division of France is not professional. All that to say, uh, not the greatest situation for Luzanac. Uh, and I do feel a lot of sympathy for them and sadness for them. Falkirk as well. Keretaro less so. Yeah, that's that's really tough. I had not heard that one before. Yeah. These are these are just bad situations. A lot of the ones that yeah. I have mm-hmm. were COVID related, or at least at least one more example. Jersey Bulls FC were playing in the tenth division of English soccer. They won twenty seven games in a row, scored ninety nine goals, and kept twenty one clean sheets. 
But because of COVID-19, the FA essentially decided to freeze Pro-Rel in some of the lower divisions in England, which meant no promotion for Jersey Bulls FC, who had set, you know, all sorts of non-league records in England. And so along with Jersey Bulls FC, tons of other teams were denied promotion or or, you know, saved from relegation. So I guess you could look at it in that way yeah. as well. The other one that I have is another unique situation. It's Bayern Munich 2 winning the three yeah. Liga in Germany last year. They became the first reserve team to win the three Liga, but they couldn't actually make the jump up. And this has happened with other clubs before. Certainly it's been discussed before with reserve teams playing at still a pretty high level in terms of their country's league system. Uh, the, the two Bundesliga would not let Bayern Munich two in because mm. they already had a first team in one of the top two divisions in Germany. So they just stayed in uh, in that three Liga and the second and third place teams were automatically promoted and the fourth placed the fourth place three Liga team yeah. got to go into that playoff with the third worst team in the two Liga. So that's a really unique situation, but I think it kind of fits with Ira's question, and I just thought it was yeah. interesting. No, and and if anything, it triggers the next one because I think it was uh, like I didn't have this in my research, but you reminded me to to the point about youth teams and reserve teams. Yeah, you can't have them, or at least in most competitions that I know of, you can't have like two clubs of the same origin. You can't have Real Madrid and Real Madrid B in the same right. flight. They right. won't let that happen. And the the time that I th- remember it being an issue was when Villarreal were relegated out of La Liga uh, into the second division. And I cannot remember if Villarreal B were already in the second division or had been promoted for winning the third division. But either way, that became the immediate concern is you can't have the same club with two teams in the same competition. So in the end, I think Villarreal stayed in uh, the second division and I think the team that were either winning the third division or had been in the second division either way ended up in the third division anyway. So you can have that, too, because you can't have those academy teams taking on their big brothers in competitions. It gets messy, folks. It gets messy. It does. does. Hopefully this episode has not gotten too messy. Joe, any other uh, clubs that could have been promoted but were not before we call it a day? I know there have been others, but that is the extent of my research. Yes, I look forward to people emailing us, and I mean that sincerely. Sometimes I say that ironically. This time, these types of questions and weird little quirky things that I knew nothing about that so leads me to reading right? 40 minutes on the structure of Mexican soccer, uh, it's what makes me uh, really enjoy doing the show. And talking to you about these things certainly does as well, Joe. So thank you for talking about the Americans Abroad this past weekend and answering some list of questions. But you've got a busy schedule ahead of you this week. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's fair to say. Not just me. I think we have a busy schedule. This week, we're going to be watching Champions League, reviewing it, previewing next week's Champions League games. Ted, I know you have a She Believes Cup themed episode coming out later this week as well. Soccer 101, Stereo, there are a lot of things happening at uh, TSS headquarters. You are correct, my friend. So a quick rundown of things. Uh, allocation Disorder is going to publish early this week because we have so much content later on in the week. So we'll have Allocation Disorder tomorrow. Also uh, tomorrow, at least scheduled for tomorrow, as Joe uh, mentioned a minute ago, I'm going to be talking to Meredith Cash. We're going to be previewing uh, the She Believes Cup, both from an American perspective and from uh, the other teams that will be competing. I've got a lot of questions or a few questions, at least about Argentina, who I remember being very, very fun and want to know how they've been. Uh, also, just about the tournament in general because we did have teams drop out teams added late all good all good when it comes to she believes so two shows tomorrow thursday we will have our champions league review show uh, myself joe and ryan looking at those games thursday evening it will be myself and joe at 7 p.m uh, i put out a poll on twitter about what time to do the stereo broadcast we've been doing them at six 
the general consensus was 8 p.m. was good for people on the East Coast and then allows people on the West Coast to be done with work. So we would normally go 8, but she believes starts on Thursday night at 8. So instead, Joe and I are going to do a, like, pre-show of sorts where basically you can be with us for an hour. We'll talk a little bit of She Believes. I think the 101 episode this week will be about She Believes Cup. We'll talk about that. We'll answer your questions. We'll put some questions to you all. That will be 7 p.m. Thursday. And then Friday, we will be doing our re- preview, excuse me, of next week's Champions League games. Uh, myself, Joe, and Ryan again. So multiple opportunities to hear from Joe this week and from Ryan and myself. Joe, any other housekeeping before we bring this one to a close? No, man, I think you covered it all. I think you need to take a deep breath, grab either a glass yeah. of water and some tea, protect those vocal cords. <laughs> and yeah, we'll be hearing we'll be hearing a lot of your voice, my voice and Ryan's voice yes. throughout the rest of this week. Yes, it, it's times like this that I am thankful that I, I stopped uh, coaching small children multiple times a day, <laughs> uh, multiple days a week, because my yeah. voice was pretty shot a few different times. Luckily, I don't have to deal with that. But you're right, Joe, I will go protect them now. So all I will say is, Joe, thank you very much for taking the time to talk about all the things we talked about today. Man, even though you've sacrificed American youth development for your own <laughs> selfish desires. No, I'm just kidding. Taylor, thank you for having me. It's always a blast. Listeners, thank you all for listening. Hopefully you all also had a blast and we will talk to you all again tomorrow. Tomorrow.